dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Kedoshim, Holy People. The address is Vaikra, Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 1, through chapter 20, verse 27. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on May 1st of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher bachar banu mikol haamim v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch ata Adonai notein haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion this week is called Kedoshim, which for those of you who are familiar with Hebrew, realize that this is a plural term. It's a plural masculine, Kedoshim. The singular would be Kadosh. And we get the word Kadosh from the root word Kadash, which has its um, origins in separation or set-apartness. We gain a, lot, a few other familiar Hebrew words from this root word Kadosh or Kadash. We get the word um, Kodesh, as in Ruach Kodesh, holiness. We get um, the term for the uh, tabernacle, the, uh, the Mikdash. Um, we also get the name for holy, uh, um, holiness, as in Kedusha, the noun. Uh, we also gain, what is the name of the little cup that we use during uh, communion? The Kiddush cup. That also uh, stems from our root word, Kadash. So it's a wonderful word. In fact, one of the more favored words in Hebrew itself. Our parasha begins this week with the benevolent statement found in the first two pasukim, the first two verses, which read, Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe leimor, Daber el kal adat b'nei Yisrael va'amarta alehim. The English is, Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to the entire community of Israel. Tell them you people are to be holy, because I, Adonai your God, am holy. That's Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. Now from the opening to Pesukim, a Sha'ela, a Torah question, is put forth. How can we, the people of an absolute holy God, likewise attain to such holiness? Interesting question. 
up for the challenge? The following lengthy quote from the Everyman's Talmud by Abraham Cohen uh, concerning holiness will help us to begin to provide an answer to the Sheila. All right, let's read that quote. To the rabbis, the idea of God was not a metaphysical abstraction, but the very foundation of right human living. As already mentioned, idolatry was synonymous with immorality and a degraded standard of life. Conversely, belief in God was the inspiration of a lofty plane of thought and action. It will be shown later that the, doc- uh, the doctrine of imitatio dei, the imitation of God, lies at the root of Talmudic ethics. The characteristic term which distinguishes the deity from this point of view is holiness. It implies apartness from everything that defiles as well as actual perfection. The rabbinic Jew always thought of God as, quote, the Holy One, blessed be He, which the Hebrew is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that being the commonest of all the names ascribed to Him. Both the divine holiness and its meaning for human beings are emphasized in this passage, quote, the Holy One, blessed be He, says to man, Behold, I am pure, my abode is pure, my ministers are pure, and the soul I give you is pure. If you return it to me in the same state of purity that I give it to you, well and good. If not, I will destroy it before you. End quote. That's taken from Leviticus Rabbah. But the term holiness has a special connotation when applied to God, the uh, Everyman's Talmud goes on to say. It has a perfection which is beyond the attainment of any human being. In the text, for he is a holy God, taken from Joshua, the adjective has a plural form which is explained to mean, quote, he is holy with all kinds of holiness, end quote. In essence, he is the perfection of holiness. On the words, ye shall be holy, taken from Leviticus, the comment is made, it is possible to imagine that man can be as holy as God. Therefore, the scripture adds, quote, for I am holy. End quote. My holiness is higher than any degree of holiness you can reach. Again, that's a quote from Leviticus Rabbah. Now, that information from the, um, every, uh, from the Everyman's Talmud was taken, if you look to footnote number one, Abraham Cohen, Everyman's Talmud, Shachan Books, 1975, pages 22 and 23. Now, the rabbis give us a clue as to answering the question, how are we to be holy? As has already been stated, Holiness is not metaphysical. It's not outside of definable borders. Our concept of holiness does not define what is holy. That's our first challenge in helping to answer the question. We don't define holy. God defines holy. God only not only defines holy, of course, he embodies holiness. For only the Holy One himself can fully define as well as embody holiness. To be sure, the phrase Ani Adonai, or I am the Lord, or its equivalent Ani Adonai Lohecha, I am the Lord your God, appears 16 times in chapter 19 of Leviticus alone. Chapter 22 of Leviticus sees another four instances of this phrase. And the lesson seems to be obvious to me, and that's, that is this. Adonai alone defines holiness among men. Only he has the power and the authority to set the standard of holiness, for he alone is the fullness of holiness, for he alone is Adonai. Amen? Amen. So, in the challenge that I've presented in answering this question, how are we to be holy, you could rephrase the question this way. What happens when humanity meets holiness? Hashem is intimately interested in our redemption. This much is known. Likewise, he's our deliverer from 
the unholy. That's why he masterfully planned for one man to become the perfect embodiment and display of his holiness. You see, only this man would be able to showcase the fullness of the holiness of God to such a degree that to look at this man was to look at God. Only this man would be able to perfectly imitate God, for only this man was and is perfectly God. Yeshua is his name. And he sets the standard. And Because of our new life in Messiah, we, you and I, Jew and Gentile, who've placed our, uh, our faith in Yeshua, we have inherited the holiness that Hashem intended for us to possess all along. There's the answer to the question. Yeshua provides the holiness. We place our faith in Him. And then the holiness is transferred to us. You see, when we place our trusting faithfulness in the perfect man of God, our holiness, or our lack thereof, becomes the holiness of the Father. What I mean is, our constitution changes, and we are no longer deemed unholy. For His riches and glory, which include His holy standard of being, of course, are transferred to our account. It's wonderful, but we must grasp this central truth and begin to live according to it. We are holy, not because we describe or define our own holiness, but we are holy because Yeshua has made us holy. In fact, in similar manner, unrighteous Abraham became righteous, if you remember in Genesis chapter 15, when he placed his complete faith in Hashem. So we too, just like Abraham, our papa, inherit the righteousness and the holiness of the Holy One when we place our unreserved trust in his Son. Now, it sounds all well and good, and to be honest, in most Christian circles, I could probably just stop my commentary right here, turn off the recorder, and say amen, right? Well, guess what? Holiness does not stop there, people. Holiness is also a duty. For the most part, what I've been doing is describing justification, to use Christian parlance. Yo, yes, we have been justified in Messiah. But now... Let's turn to a discussion on sanctification. Let's see what holiness looks like when it's walked out in a practical measure. This next section is entitled, Walking in Kedusha. Kedusha, of course, is holiness. Now, apart from being an attribute of God, one that we inherit intrinsically or positionally with our trusting faithfulness in the Messiah, holiness is also meant to be a lifestyle. This is why I keep using the phrase, in case you're asking, Ariel, why don't you just say, our faith in Messiah? I keep using the phrase, trusting faithfulness, rather than simple faith. And let me explain why. The latter, that is faith, implies a one-time action on our part, which forever sets into motion a spiritual truth that will be fully actualized at the, par- at the return of our Lord. Okay? Notice the candor of the phrase, quote, I place my trust in Yeshua. Okay, sounds simple enough. However, now let's compare this to the former phrase, trusting faithfulness, all right? The former carries the aspect of a daily motion which permeates every movement of our new creation lives. Let's rephrase that phrase, that the um, sample sentence there now. Instead of saying, I place my trust in Yeshua, or I place my faith in Yeshua, let's put it this way. 
I place my trusting faithfulness in Yeshua. Do you notice the subtle difference? I turn the noun into a verb. I place my trust in Yeshua. I place my faith, which is a noun. I turned it into a verb by saying, I place my trusting faithfulness in Yeshua. It's it's modified just a bit. Maybe I suppose the word faithfulness is not a full verb, but the difference that I'm trying to explain here is that to live by trusting faithfulness rather than just by faith alone characterizes our moment-by-moment thought processes as well as our actions. In other words, it's what's inside that dictates what happens on the outside. The former carries our faith into action. In other words, let me put it this way. This new life in Messiah is an ever-constant, ever-growing relationship with the Holy One of Israel. A demonstration, you could say, of the miraculous on a level that can and should be measured in even the smallest areas of our lives. In other words, people, trusting faithfulness is ongoing. It's not static. It doesn't just sit still. I don't just say, you know what, 30 years ago I believed in Jesus and, you know, here I am today. I know that most Christians wouldn't couch it in that language. But to say I trust in Jesus and to say I continue to trust and be faithful because of what Yeshua has done seems to be two um, comparative uh, ideals that we need to look at both of them. It's not, faith is not, well really what I'm saying is trusting is not some unmoving, some, some monumental event which took place sometime in our lives in the past. It, it actually is the ongoing monumental process that overtakes our lives. For how long? For the rest of our lives. And it was enacted when we first had a genuine encounter with the divine holiness. Okay? Is it seeming to make a little more sense now? Again, it's this whole notion of justification and sanctification and the supposed um, tension that exists between the two positions. I want to refer you... Um, to a few more of my own resources if you'd like to get a little bit more on this concept. Go to our website to the More Lessons um, page, which is under the Commentaries link near the top of the website. Click on Commentaries, and then click on More Lessons. And from that page, you'll see that I have several additional commentaries. One of the commentaries, as I look down the list, um, right around... Let's see, where did I put it here? Well, well, I can't seem to find it. Tanakh and the Greek show that the Torah's underscoming what is food who's a Jew. There we go, okay. It's right there around the middle. It's called Trust and Obey. And I also did an audio series on that as well. It's part of my Show Mermaid's Vote series. Trust and Obey. Click on the uh, PDF link and or click on the audio link and li- give that a listen. Trusting and obeying. Two concepts that seem to be contradictory or challenging to many in the Christian movement. Um, but they should not be because they are two sides of the same coin. All right, Holiness is not something that we should just uh, put off and on when it's convenient to us. That's what I'm trying to challenge us to. Okay, today I'm going to be holy. Today is uh, the, the first day of the week or the end of the week, which depending on which religion you follow, right? And so today I've got to be holy. I've got to put on my holy clothes and go to, go to congregation or go to church and be holy like the rest of the people. And then... After church is over, after shul is over, I take off my holy clothes and then I'm just normal Ariel again. That's not the way it should be. Okay, Holiness is a state that we should constantly exist in, not just when we're around other people who are holy. Now, how do we do 
what Hashem expects us to do? That's the answer, or that's the question, okay? How do we do it? How do we walk into holiness? What does Kedusha look like? Well, here's the answer, and it's pretty simple. By faithfully trusting in His power and in His word to work in and through our lives to produce what? A temple that is usable and dedicated. That's how we do it. I also want you to go to my commentary on Hanukkah. Okay? Hanukkah. You can click on the uh, Feast Days link off the website and scroll down near the bottom and you'll find Hanukkah. I've also done two audios, uh, two audio commentaries to accompany that. Holiness is doing what God asks us to do. It's not just who we are on the inside, but it's who we are on the outside. We do what the Torah tells us to do. And we allow Hashem to make good on His promises that as we are doing what the Torah tells us to do, He, the Father, is reshaping our thoughts and desires to conform to the image of His Holy Son. That's the answer to the question, people. It's not difficult, and yet it's life-changing. It's, 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 a, it's a matter of deciding whether or not we're going to just do it. You know, like the, uh, the old Nike slogan, just do it. That's really what we need to decide. You know, the Torah says to do it, and we should just do it. And we, we should place our faith in the fact that God is going to, to continually renew our mind by the washing of His Word, by the power of His Spirit, and by the reshaping of our lives into the pattern of His Son. Holiness is not just something that we, uh, we sit around and dream about. Alright, gosh, one day I'm going to be holy. Ah, doesn't it sound good? No, it's more than that. It's more than a revelation or a feeling. It is a call to action. What I've been discussing here is not some new and modern twist on religion, in case it sounds really funky. It's not new. This description of holiness is the standard that Hashem has expected since when? Since the creation of man. And that's why the Torah provides for us the blueprint for holy living. We cannot expect to be holy people without the Spirit of God first and foremost. And what is more, we cannot expect to walk as holy people are expected to walk without the words of God instructing us. You know, we in the 21st century are geared towards wanting the latest and the greatest. Wouldn't you agree? You know, we always want the latest car. We want the latest fashions. We want the latest computers with the fastest processors. But sometimes, you know what? The old wine is better. And this year, as Hanukkah takes place, I want to challenge you when Hanukkah comes up around, comes up this, uh, in 2007 this year. Take a moment to reflect on the reality of who you are in Messiah. Who are you in Jesus? And you know what? You don't need to be some hyper-spiritual person to accomplish the task of holiness. You don't need to be some, some, some holy guru, um, some seminarian to figure out who you are in God. You are a dedicated holy temple set apart from the ordinary, which is the world and its system. That's the ordinary, the mundane. And you are set apart unto a life of praise and obedience to God Almighty. That's who you are. And you know what? Far from being a position that is low, this is an identity of preeminence. This is a position of honor. We are honored vessels in 
Messiah. And so we should, we should be walking that way. I'm not saying that we should be um, walking around with the latest and the greatest and the fanciest clothes and the most gold and, and all that stuff. Of course, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a genuine holiness that radiates from the inside and is seen in a practical measure throughout each and every community that we find ourselves in. And you know what? The greatest reality is this, is that this holiness that I'm describing, this position, this preeminence, was not accomplished because that you or I deserve to be called holy. It's not that, that, that we are that way. In fact, Israel alone is fond of imagining that she was called out to be the chosen ones because she alone accepted God's yoke of obedience. It's kind of how the rabbis phrase it. You know, God gave the the uh, the Devarim the ten words to all of the nations of the earth, and no one accepted it, and only Israel alone accepted it. And therefore, she alone is worthy to be called His people. It's a fanciful imagination, but you know what? Israel doesn't deserve to be God's chosen. They really don't. It was not because we had deserved it. Rather, it was because the Father chose to do what? To demonstrate his intense love for our ancestors and for us by doing what? By sending his Son to become the means of attaining holiness in the first place. When God says, be holy because I am holy, he knows that the only way for us to attain to such holiness is to fall on the mercy of his only Son. Our holiness finds its purpose and meaning in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Yeshua. His Spirit, His Ruach, empowers us to live a life that is pleasing to Hashem and at the same time, I might add, gives us the boldness and the opportunity to share our testimony with those who do not yet know Yeshua personally. That's what holiness is all about. Holiness is separation from the ways of the world. It's separation from the way of the world unto God and his ways. Okay? We cannot negate both aspects of of repentance and turning from that which is bad and returning unto what that which is good. We are holy. We are separated. We are dedicated. We turn away from the world's ways and we turn unto the ways of God. There's another resource I want to make you aware of. Again, on the website, go to the homepage, uh, graftedin.com, and right around the middle, you'll see a link and an icon, a picture of Mark sitting in front of a microphone. It's called Torah Talk Radio Show. Radio Show. Click on that link. It'll bring up a list of the um, Torah Talk Radio Shows that we've done this year for 2007. What I'd like you to do is click on the archives that we had from 2006. And probably about 10 shows down from the top, you'll see that we did a section called Biblical Holiness, and then we talked about the dietary laws. But the first show is well worth giving a listen, people. Biblical Holiness, Dietary Laws, because we introduced this concept that we are holy, we are dedicated, we are set apart from the world's ways and set apart unto God. The true Talmud, the true disciple of Yeshua, is called to a righteous life, not according to his own standard, but according to Scripture's standard. You might say, oh yes, Ariel, I'm holy. But my challenge to you is by whose standard are you holy? Are you set apart by your Christian denomination? Are you set apart by your Jewish tradition? Are you set apart by your catechism? By your by your study of Torah? You better be set apart by God's standards, which is God's holy word and God's holy spirit. If you're not set apart by those standards, then don't call yourself set apart. 
Okay? The scripture is the only object, objective standard that we can claim to be set apart by. Any other standard is not true holiness. So, let's examine some of the biblical marks of holiness. All right? For this exercise, we're on the bottom of page 4. I'm going to use some information supplied by uh, Daniel C. Juster, who is a, a very well-known name in Messianic circles. He has supplied the following list of holiness qualities in his excellent discipling manual called Growing to Maturity, a Messianic Jewish guide. It's uh, published by the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, the UMJC. And uh, what I'm going to do for my commentary is I'm going to quote the comments that he listed, and, uh, um, and then I'm going to follow each comment by my own um, commentary. So the comments following each heading have been added by myself. I've labeled each one for ease of understanding. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Dan Juster says this, number one, a holy person is one who has died to self. Ariel's comment is this, the person who struggles with complete surrender to our Lord cannot rightfully address him as Lord. For the person who recognizes him as such cannot at the same time claim to have personal control over his own life as well. You see there? When we surrender to God, we are transferring the seat of authority from our will to the will of the Father. Yeshua must be Lord of all in order for him to be Lord of Ariel. He has to be Lord of all that I am in order for him to be my Lord. And in this aspect, holiness is a lifelong process. Yeah, sad to say. I, I mean, am I saying that I'm totally surrendered in my flesh? Huh. Oh, that I wish it were so. There are things that I look into my own life and I realize, you know what? I need some house cleaning. I've got to get these areas in order. Certain um, proclivities that I'm prone to, certain um, habits that I am drawn towards. You know, and, and those of you listening to my podcast, if you were to examine your own lives, I'm sure you have some things as well. Oh, that I wish I were completely surrendered. It is a lifelong process, and I've been working on it ever since I introduced Yeshua into my life. As Shaul stated, so state I, quote, For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah, but in my various parts, I see a different Torah. End quote. That's Romans 7, verse 20. Um, I think it's 22 to 23. Let me look that up real quick. I have a misquote on my commentary, and I need to fix it. Let's see, what did I say? Romans 7, okay. 22, I believe. Uh, for in my inner self, yeah, it's 22 to 23, okay. Correct that there. So, in in the statement, the verse in the Pasuk that the Shaul is quoting, he's, he's recognizing it on the inside, he does what God says he's supposed to do. He, he agrees with God's righteous standard. But his members aren't always conformed to that righteous standard. And so Shaul also admits, like you and I are admitting today, that um, to be holy and to walk in holiness don't always line up. We are holy. Don't get that wrong. You are as holy now as you're ever going to be forensically. When Yeshua declared you forensically, positionally holy or righteous, you became a child and you are as holy and righteous as you're ever going to be. But for uh, behaviorally, um, I must align my life day by day, moment by moment, with that holiness. This aspect of holiness that I'm referring to in my answer is one that entails my constant surrendering to the Lord of Lords so that my death in Messiah might indeed be complete and my life in him full 
to overflowing. Let's go on. Dan Juster, point number two. A holy person is a person of compassionate love, or agape. Ariel's answer, or Ariel's response. Love is the supreme motivator of holy actions, and as such should be the chief characteristic of our new creation lives in Messiah. Dan Juster, point number three. A holy person reflects God's standard of righteousness in the Bible. Ariel's commentary. This is an issue of authority, as I see it, when we say God's standard. Right? We cannot dictate the standards of holiness, nor should we attempt to. It is just insulting when we go from place to place these days and we hear our preachers and our rabbis saying, Be holy! Be holy! God says be holy! You better be holy! And yet, no one's defining holiness according to God's word. We're all defining holiness according to our own standards. And that's wrong, people. We don't redefine holiness and we don't redefine sin. Only God's word has the authority to perform this vital function in our lives. When we succeed in demonstrating the holiness of Hashem, as outlined for us in his word, the surrounding communities will see and understand that there is no God like our God and that his righteous standards are good true and reliable reference Deuteronomy chapter 4 moreover these same people will consequently desire to walk in this holiness as they see us walk in this holiness failure to make a difference between the holy and the profane always 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 results in ungodliness and moral degradation and ultimately it leads to death and destruction okay Let's continue. Dan Juster, point number four. A holy person does not lust for material possessions. Ariel's comment. The Torah states that, quote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, end quote. That's, of course, Psalm 23. The absence of holiness leaves room for covetous desire. Hashem has promised to supply all our needs according to his riches in Messiah. And therefore, lust for the treasures of this world is counterproductive to trust in Messiah. I think the Master stated it well. You cannot serve God and mammon. Something which truncates our trust will also affect our standard of living, thus hindering our holiness. So it's best to stay away from lusting after material possession. In the believer's life, there simply is no room for material lust. Dan Juster, point number five. A holy person is called to holy or pure thinking. Ariel's comment. This is where the battlefield of the mind exists. It's all in the mind. Our thought processes govern our outward actions. Yeshua stated it well. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And out of the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You want to know what a person feels like on the inside? Just listen to them talk. Give them an audience. Give them a platform. Let them yak away for a while, and you'll find out what's on the inside. We usually think, and then we act. Some of us fail to ever think before we act, but that's another lesson. You know what I mean? The Torah enjoins us to take on the mind of Messiah, that we may indeed perform the will of God, and therefore do his good pleasure. The Torah also admonishes us to do what? To think ungodly things. Read Philippians 4. Verse 8, and you'll see what I'm talking about there. Let's move on. Dan Juster, point number 6. The holy person is called to purity of speech. Ariel's comment. It is said that the tongue can kill. 
Indeed, slander and gossip can so ruin a person's life that they are all but physically destroyed. They would wish that they were dead. The rabbis characterize such unholy speech by the title Lashon Hara, which means the evil tongue, literally. Lashon Hara has the effect of a leprous sore, which slowly but surely cripples the individual until the whole body is infectious and weak. Unholy speech tears down individuals. Unholy speech tears down God's creation. The rabbis even go so far as to say that there are three individuals who were destroyed by Lashon Hara. Watch this. The person being talked about, the individual listening to the gossip, and finally the one delivering the gossip. All three are destroyed when Lashon Hara is committed. The rabbis also say, this is not in my written commentary, but I just remembered it. The rabbis also talk about that when... Um, when a person sins by committing Lashon Hara, when a person sins in general, but particularly Lashon Hara, they destroy that which God created. They destroy the creation of God. Because we destroy man in whom God invested his, his image. We are created in the image of God. And therefore, to destroy another person by our mouth is to destroy God's creation. It's a, it's a humbling thought. It's a sobering thought to think that as we tear one another down, with the words that we use, that we are actually tearing down God's creation. And you know what? That's a sin. The student listening to my commentary today should read Ephesians 4, 29 and 30, as well as James 3, verses 6 through 18. Let's move on. Dan Juster's point to number 7 is, the holy person is called to humility. R.L.'s comment, genuine holiness cannot be maintained apart from humility. The proud person may externally follow some of the rules of holiness, but will project a self-righteous, holier-than-thou attitude if he's got pride on the inside. Holiness without humility is pretense, people. You're just pretending to be holy if you have no humility. Yeshua is the example. Okay, This is a primary trap of many otherwise godly leaders. They've got great potential, great gifting, great calling on their life. Lots of uh, support behind them. And yet, because of pride, they become puffed up, arrogant, and ultimately God has to tear them down. Without holiness and humility, you cannot help others conquer sin and grow into maturity. It just can't happen. Again, our ultimate example here, of course, is our humble Lord Yeshua, who did what? Who demonstrated both his holiness and his humility by serving one another. He served us. He served his disciples. He washed their feet at the uh, Passover meal. And the disciples recognized, hey, you're the master. We should be washing your feet. And Yeshua said, no, I'm demonstrating what you should be doing. And and later, later, those who would read will remember that I am not come to be served, but to serve. It's a great lesson for us today. Let's draw some conclusions to my commentary. This last section is entitled Conclusions and Practical Applications. Okay, We're at the middle of page 6. We only have one more page to go. Dan Juster provides one more point here, point number 8, which reads, quote, The holy person is a socially compassionate person. Now, look at my comment this time. Ariel, our Torah portion includes this familiar, all-important mitzvah. The, uh, the mitzvah is found in Leviticus 19.18, which reads, Lo tikom v'lo tikom et b'nei amecha, v'ahava l'reacha kamocha. 
Ani Adonai. The English is, don't take vengeance on or bear a grudge against any of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I am Adonai, end quote. It's a very familiar passage. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, va'ahavta l're'acha kamocha. It is a passage that is quoted very, very often. In fact, I think it's the most oft-quoted pasuk in the apostolic scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our sages had much to say about this particular verse. Rabbi Akiva, who lived in the first century, um, or was nearly a contemporary of Yeshua, I think he lived in the second century, actually. Um, he said that this is the fundamental rule of the Torah. Okay, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's uh, quoted by Rashi in the Sifra. Hillel paraphrased it this way. What is hateful to you, do not do to others. In Shabbos uh, 31a, out of the Talmud. In other words, he turned it into the negative. And Yeshua had the positive. But it captures the same idea. The story also has been told how Hillel answered the request of the heathen who wished to be converted to Judaism on the condition that he was taught the whole Torah while he stood on one foot. You've heard this story before? The rabbis answered him, quote, What is hateful to yourself, do not do to your fellow man. Okay, again, that's taken from Shabbos, or Shabbat 31a. Um, this is the Talmudic formulation of the golden rule, as it were. That, that's really what we're talking about, the golden rule. All right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is the great rule. And the Talmudic formulation just turns it in reverse. Great stress has been laid by theologians of a certain school upon the fact that Hillel's maxim is worded in the negative, whereas the Gospels have it in the positive form. And again, profound ethical differences are detected by them in the differences, in the variation. But, but they who have no theological axe to grind, I'm one of them, will probably agree with the conclusion of Professor Cattell. Let me read his conclusion here, alright? Quote, In reality, almost everything which has been thought to exist in delicate uh, difference between the negative and positive form is due to modern reflections on the subject. For the consciousness of the age of Jesus, the two forms were scarcely distinguishable. End quote. I have to agree with uh, Professor Kittle there. Um, Basically, they're saying the same thing. However, let's continue looking at the sages. They continue by saying, quote, We must wish upon others the same degree of success and prosperity we wish upon ourselves, and we must treat others with the utmost respect and consideration. And that's taken from the Rambam, from Rabbi Moshe bin Maimon. I'm sorry, from the Ramban, Nachmanides, not Maimonides, but Nachmanides. When questioned directly about which mitzvot are the greatest in the Torah, if you remember which commandment is the greatest, Yeshua replied that the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6.4, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He replied that that one is the greatest, and then this one here in, in Leviticus 18 are. These two are the greatest two mitzvot. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, our master went on to explain that a proper understanding of his father's Torah stems from an understanding of these two mitzvot. Did you catch that? If we love God properly, consequently we will love our neighbor properly. So, this really brings us full circle. Loving God is based on a correct knowledge of Him, and this in turn produces holiness of which He commands us to possess. Do you remember right at the beginning of my commentary? He commands us. Let me just... Turn back there to the very beginning here. The verse said, uh, um, Basically, 
Be ye holy because I am holy. Right? So, now that we've come full circle, let's draw our conclusions and then I'll let you go, okay? Let me just quote this phrase and then explain it uh, in such a way that will make it crystal clear, okay? The Torah says, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. I understand this Pasuk to be teaching us um, this is this mitzvah is the primary form of profound revelation knowledge to know and comprehend or to know and affirm that God is one. Secondly, the Torah teaches us and you are to love Adonai your God. This next mitzvah that we read about is the fruit of genuine revelation knowledge of the echad, of the unity of Hashem, loving the Lord, our God, the one who is the only one. And then after that, thirdly, the pasuk that we read about in today's parasha, it says, Kadoshim ki kadosh ani Adonai Elohechem. You people are to be holy because I, Adonai your God, am holy. This pasuk uh, introduces the injunction which is set into motion once we have internalized the first two mitzvot. Okay? We step into action. God says be holy. But we cannot be holy until we recognize that God is one and that we are to love him. And then finally the mitzvah says Va'ahavta l'reach kamocha I'm sorry, our holiness finds purpose as we love our neighbor as ourselves. Our holiness finds purpose as we imitate God by demonstrating His love in us by loving our fellow man. Amen. God loved us and He demonstrated His love for us by sending a Son. We are to demonstrate love for our fellow man by Really, the Torah says that the greatest love that a man can have for his brother is if he lays down his life. I'm not asking everyone to die for everyone else. That's not what I mean. But but spiritually speaking, that's true. As I die to Ariel and I surrender to those around me, as I serve the other and defer to the other, then the love of God is made manifest in my life and in the lives of those of whom I'm serving. Amen. Amen. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu Torah temet vechaye olam nata batochinu. Baruch atah Adonai noten haTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be.
My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. Thank you.